All right, well, let's go to the book of Luke this morning, Luke chapter 15, power in parables. We have been looking at the parables of Christ. Today, the parable of the prodigal son. William Cowper, perhaps the greatest poet of the 18th century, said that the parable of the prodigal son is the most beautiful fiction that was ever written, and it flies directly to the heart. Truly, the prodigal son story is the most rich and lengthy and inexhaustible in its truth of all of the parables. And yet at the same time, it is so basic that even a child can grasp its truth. It is certainly an amazing. It's a long story. I have a very full outline, and so we're going to jump right into that. But before we do, uh, maybe something to make you smile here. Here's about a prodigal, a young Jewish boy that not very obedient. Abraham's 13-year-old boy was sent home from school once again for bad behavior. Abraham is at wit's end, doesn't know what to do. He talks with his neighbor, Frank, who's a Catholic, and says, I'll tell you one thing, I, I'd send him down to the school over there, the Catholic school. Abraham says, I don't know. I, I don't know if I should send my son to a Catholic school, but he said, those nuns know how to take care of boys like little Isaac. So he sent him down there uh, to the Catholic school. After several months at the Our Lady of the Perpetual Help, this little boy was like a saint. Abraham asks the little boy, he said, why is it that you are behaving so good now? Well, said the little boy, when I came there, they showed me this Jewish boy on a cross, and I knew those nuns meant business. <laughs> yep. All right. Let's all bow forward to prayer and uh, ask God's help here. Father, we do thank you for the great story of the, par of the prodigal son. I pray, God, you give me a clear mind now, Lord, after all those miles and uh, just uh, being here with these precious saints. Lord, I pray that uh, you would bring fruit today. And that's been my prayer for these last couple of days. And Lord, I'll just believe you're going to do that. Thank you for these faithful people. In Christ's name, amen. Now, when we come to a parable like this one especially, it's important to remember that this parable, as all the parables, were written in a Middle Eastern mindset. It is impossible to simply just read the Bible and then be able to understand it all without taking into account history and the cultural um, thoughts of the day. It's especially true in this one because Jesus was um, telling a parable that ingrained the cultural attitudes of the day, especially in those more poor village lives. So let's find out where we are. Christ now is on his way to Jerusalem. It is the last months of his earthly life. For three years, faithfully, day after day, hour after hour, he has been preaching one message, and that is the message, the greatest message, and that is that there is salvation through Jesus Christ. He was preaching the fact that no matter who you are and where you come from, you can go to heaven and you can have eternal life. It makes no difference your background. It just makes the difference where you're going. It was a great message. And yet without fail, there were people who didn't like that message, namely, especially the false religious crowd. They felt like it was a threat to uh, 
themselves, uh, what they were teaching. They felt like they were going to lose power. They, uh, of course, uh, typically comes down to money. They felt like they were going to lose the people's support, whatever the case is. And of course, Jesus didn't help matters any because he actually confronted their hypocrisy and they certainly didn't like that. And so what did they do? They tried to discredit him. You name it, they threw the kitchen sink at Jesus and hopefully something would stick. One of the things that seemed to get a foothold, and apparently because they kept doing it, and that was that Jesus must be sinful if he spends so much time reaching out to sinful people. Now, again, you'd have to kind of be a, uh, that Jewish mindset to understand that uh, connection there. But in their minds, that pretty much proved that Jesus wasn't a good person because he spent so much time reaching out to these people. And so Jesus confronts them with three successive stories. We looked at two of those stories the last time, a few weeks ago. The first one told of a shepherd who had had a hundred sheep, and he loved all the sheep, but the one sheep was lost. And so what did the shepherd do? He went out and found that sheep, no matter what it took. And Jesus said, that's what God is like. He makes sure that he finds the lost. And then he told a story about a woman who had coins, and she lost one, and how it was such great joy to the heart of that woman when she found that coin. It's the same way with God. Jesus said, you don't understand the heart of God if you're not understanding that God loves sinful people. Now this story. This story here is the main story of the entire parable here about lostness and about being found. This story goes beyond any of the first two stories. It is the most dramatic It is deeply impactful on the conscience because it really goes to the heart that many families felt during that day. Now, as we go through the balance of this chapter here, we're going to go through parts one today and part two next week, the Lord willing, but it clearly to me falls into four parts, the ruin, the return, the rejoicing, and then sadly, the reproof. Let's go first point, number one, the ruin. What ruined this young son in this prodigal story? Now, as we open up this story, we find that the younger son is the, uh, is the focus of what we're talking about. Luke 15, verse number 12, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that follow to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, if we find this young man, we're going to be able to find out where he went wrong. What led to his downward spiral? First of all, he was disrespectful of his father's leadership. Now, we oftentimes call this young man the prodigal. It's actually not in the uh, Bible story. It's just a, uh, a word that's been given about this young man. It just simply means one who is wasteful, extravagant, self-indulgent. And it's really a great word. It's an old English word. Notice what it says of this younger man. It says, he said to his father, Father, give me the portion of the goods that falleth to me. Now, we read that, and we just like, okay, that's an interesting story. But I will tell you, when Jesus looked at these Jewish men, and he said, I'm going to tell you a story about a son who went to his father and demanded his inheritance, oh, they would have, there, would, there would have been a collective gasp in that room. They would have known Nobody does that. That is 
absolutely terrible that this young man would be so insolent that he would do that to his father. Why? Because it's an outrageous request. Likely not married, probably in his teens. Utterly disrespectful towards his father's leadership. Notice what he does very proudly. He says, give me. Not a please. He demands. And I, this whole story, of course, has many uh, relationships to our ideas towards God. And we are in a downhill spiral ourselves when we view God's blessings as something that is owed us. Now, actually, in this Middle Eastern village, uh, it would have been tantamount if he was to say something like, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Basically, what he was saying was, Dad, I really wish you were dead because nobody got their inheritance unless the father was dead. And for him to insist on his inheritance now, he would be saying, basically, Dad, I really, for me, honestly, the best thing of you would just pass off the scene. But not only was he saying that, he was actually saying, I want the stuff that I want, and I have no intentions of taking care of you. I have no intentions of taking care of mom. I have no intentions of ever being a blessing to the family. I just want what I want, and I want to live my life. And so, really, this man was absolutely disrespectful. Now, how disrespectful? You can look later in verse number 24. The father said when he came back, the son came back, he said, This my son was dead. That just tells you how serious of a thing this boy did. He basically did something that in a community he would be considered dead to the family, dead to the village, dead to community. He's at it. We don't even know he exists anymore. This was a serious breach, the ruin. He was utterly disrespectful of his father's leadership. Number two, he was distrustful of his father's restraint. Obviously here, he had grown weary of his dad's boundaries, wise boundaries. His attitude was not a healthy desire to launch as a young man. He'd just grown tired of the restraints. Notice what says the younger of them. That's a problem right there. But the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me. He didn't say, Dad, could you give me some direction on my life? He didn't say, Dad, could I get some advice from you about my future? He didn't say, Dad, could you pray for me? Could we pray together about what I should do for my life? No. He just wanted to throw off the bridle. He was like a horse that was running away. He said, I want nothing to do with your rules. And here we find the life of a sinner. They simply will not be tied to the rules of God. Similar to what Lucifer told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. He said, you know what God's issue is with you? He doesn't want you to eat of this because then you'll be gods unto yourself. And you know, when we become gods unto ourselves, then we make the rules. We don't want God to make the rules. His ruin, a disrespectful of his father's leadership, distrustful of his father's restraint, and then disdainful of his father's provision. Notice what it says in this verse. He said, God, Father, give what falleth to me. Give what falleth. Give what I am owed. Give it to me. Now, what is he meaning? Well, uh, those of you who know Old Testament theology, Know that there was, a, uh, there was a right of the firstborn. 
The firstborn child in any family would get a double portion of the goods of the family. There was a reason for that, not just because he was the firstborn and somehow he was special, but that he was expected to be the one who would be the executor of the family. He would be the one who would take care of the, the wills and make sure that everybody is taken care of, especially if the father died, he would take care of mom. But this fellow was saying this. Now, there was two sons. So since the first son would get a double portion, then basically everything would be divided into thirds. This fellow decided, I want my third. I want my third, and I want it now. Now, he must have felt like that this was some pretty good amount of money, because if he could live on a third of his father's estate, and he could uh, go out there and live it up, then he must, his dad must have been pretty well-to-do. But here's what the son was saying. He was saying, I'm out of here. I don't want any accountability. I don't want you to tell me anything. I don't want you any restraints on my life. I just want my money, and I'm out of here. Now, to everyone's surprise, and at this point, the, when Jesus told this part of the story, again, I'm sure these men, their mouth dropped open. He said, the Father divided unto them His living. They were like, what? What, what kind of a father would give in to that? That's uh, because... The father who it's representing did exactly that. But notice what it says, he divided unto them his living. That actually is the Greek word bio, which means life. He divided unto him his life or his livelihood. So here's what the father actually did. The father took everything that he had that actually was his money-making business, his job, his career. He took it, he thirded it, and he gave it to that younger son. Now, friends, this father is God. God is the one who gives the sinner his freedom and rains blessings on the just, but also the unjust. Any sinner that goes to hell can never say anything, but I'll tell you what, God was always good to me. God gave me water. God gave me food. God gave me air. God gave me so much. The sinner has no relationship to God. He really doesn't want any accountability to God. And of course, he wants the blessings of God. Sinful lives want blessings on their marriages, blessings on their business. They want uh, good help. And yet here we find that uh, God is this father. Now, step one, the father, let's get the father to split the estate. That didn't work out. So step two, uh, it didn't work out like he wanted, although he got it. Step number two, now we find the handwriting on the wall, not many days later. What happens? Six characteristics of the ruin of sin. Number one, a sinful life is a departing life. Verse number 13, and not many days after the younger son gathered all together, took his journey. He took his journey. He departed into a far country and there wasted his substance with riotous living. Sin is always a direction, friends. It's a choice. It's a direction. It's a journey. You know, we are either going towards God or away from God. This last week, I was either walking towards God or I was walking away from God. There's no middle ground with God. We're either going, we're either for Him or against Him. But notice how dangerous this journey is. It says, He took His journey. Now, when He took His journey, He wasn't thinking, I'm going to end up in a hog's pen. No, He just said, I'm... I'm tired of the rules. I'm tired of 
responsibility. I want to party. I want to have a big time. I want to live it up. I want to be like the world. I just want to go out there. But it was a journey. And that's the problem with sin. It's always the first step in a journey. Someone says, look, I just took one drink. Well, my friend, one drink may lead to a far country. It was just one touch of that person and acting out some fantasies I had in my mind. You have no idea where that may lead you. It's a journey. It's always a journey. One step, one touch, one drink. You'd say, well, pastor, I can control myself. My friend, nobody can control sin. Nobody controls sin. Someone's saying, well, you know, these, these people who feel like they can control a, a lion or a tiger, you know, those who train them know you can't ever really control them. You might be able to do this or that, but at the, any given moment, it will get you. It's a far country. A sinful life, first of all, is a departing life. Number two, it is a spending life. Look at verse 13. There he wasted his substance with riotous living. Wasted. It was so unnecessary. Now, we're not talking about a gray hair here who was enjoying the well-deserved fruits of his long labor. You know, maybe he was retired and had the ability to go do some nice things with his money and with his time. No, we're talking about a teenage boy who just wanted everything he wanted. And we know exactly what he did because in verse 30 it says he spent at least part of it on harlots. I mean, this guy was out to have party time. He wanted his $100 bottles of wine so he could impress. That's what he was all about. He just wasted it. I mean, all the hard work that his father had put into him, and he wasted it. Number three, a sinful life is a wanting life. And when he had spent all, there arose a famine, a mighty famine, and he began to be in want. Here we find this sinful son representing unbelievers who throw away all the favor of God. All the favors that God has given them, they just toss it away. All those years a person could be serving God. All those years a person could be having the wonderful fellowship with God. And notice what happens when that decision was made. Down the line, a famine occurred. You say, well, you can't blame the famine on the sun. That's true. But here's the issue about a famine. Famines occur to everybody. They occur to the good ones and they occur to the bad ones. But the problem with this man was he didn't have any money to make it through the famine. Why? Because he'd wasted it all. You know, you'd say, well, I'm going to live it up. Yeah, but what about when the tough times come? Are you going to be able to go to God and pray? No, because you've wasted. We've wasted our time and wasted our energy. A sinful life, number four, is an enslaving life. It's an enslaving life. Look at verse 15. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into this field to speed swine. Freedom! I want my freedom! <laughs> but his freedom didn't last very long. It says he went and he joined himself to a citizen of that country. That's exactly what the Jews claimed during the time of Christ. They said, we have never been under the bondage of anyone. <laughs> I don't know where they got that history lesson there. But in John chapter 8 and verse 34, Jesus said, no, you are slaves. He didn't call them on their history, but he did say the fact is when you sin, you just show you're a servant of sin. Because if you didn't sin, you would be able to say, I'm not a servant of sin. 
Obviously, you are a servant because you sin. Here, he finds himself without any freedom, no family, no foreign. Here he is in a foreign land, and I'll tell you one thing, it gets pretty lonely in a foreign country. You don't understand the language. They have a different culture. Penniless on Skid Row, and the party is now officially over. He thought he was going to live it up big and party time, but that kind of a lifestyle doesn't last very long, and then when the famine hits, it really goes. So what does this young man do? He repents. He just gets right with God. He runs back to the Father. No, he does plan B, what most sinners do, and that is he joins himself to a citizen of the country. Anything but go to God. Anything but run to God. I'll go to a citizen of the country, refusing to humble himself, ashamed to come and face his father. He does what most unrepentant people do, and that is, I've got to do something about my problem. I've got to go back to school. I've got to get a better job. I need a different mate. I need to, I need to change things. I need to take some pills. I I need to change my life. I got to do something to make something different. Notice it says he joined himself with a citizen of the country. Now, this citizen, that was not just any word there. That meant this was a privileged person. And that's very typical for a person who's sinful. They find living a sinful, prodigal life, they just want to find the most successful person they can. Instead of finding success in Jesus, they find success in some TV star or some sports star or some business star or whatever the case is. But they find themselves a privileged person, a citizen. And it says they join themselves. He joined himself. That meant he was all over this citizen. If you ever do any traveling in a third world country, you know that's something they do there that it's not done as much here, and that is begging. There's beggars everywhere, especially in many countries of Europe. There's the Roma, and there's other groups there now from Syria and uh, folks from North Africa, and uh, they are tricky as they can be. And when we had in Italy there, we had this one lady who came up to me, and we were walking along, and she had a big long flower, and she, she gave it to me, and I thought, isn't that sweet? She would give me a long stem flower. And then she said, kiss mama. Kiss mama, she meant Pauline. And uh, I said, well, I don't know. And then I realized she was wanting money for this flower. And she was all over me. I mean, she had her arms on, on my arms. And she was holding on to my, and I gave her, she didn't want the flower back. Uh-uh. And uh, no, I mean, they, she was all over me. Here, this man was uh, joining himself. The prodigal son was joining himself to this citizen. He finds a citizen who he can grab onto. And I'll tell you what, you have to actually be protected in many of these countries because of all the things that are going on. We were in one place there overseas, and um, there's a lot of uh, North African refugees who piled on the boats and ended up in Italy there. And it's a real problem in Italy. There's hundreds and several thousand, tens of thousands of them. And they actually don't have jobs, and so they're, they're tricky people. Uh, I was walking along, and this uh, uh, North African man, he looked at me, he said, Oh, black and white, black and white shoes, black and white shoes. And I looked down and thought, black and white shoes? What in the world are you talking about? And uh, 
but he was trying to get me to look down so that his friend could come over and take something out of my pocket. And uh, I mean, it, boy, I mean, to tell you, it's just, wow, you got to careful. And that's what's going on here. He is joining himself to a citizen of the country. Anything but go back to the Father. I'm just going to, I'm going to leave the, I don't want to mess with the Father. No, I don't want to go back to that kind of a life. And so he does whatever he can to desperately make himself part of this other country. Well, at this point that Jesus is telling this story, the men are all shaking their heads thinking, my goodness, what a crazy young man. And notice the fifth step. A sinful life is a dissatisfying life. Now, when Jesus told this part of the story, these men were probably retching almost. Verse 16, and he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine, the pigs did eat, and no man gave unto him. And so he decides that uh, he would try to be a uh, laborer for him. And it says here that he would have filled his belly with the husks of the swine. He was so hungry, he was ready to fight the pigs for the slop that they were eating. Now, it clearly says husks. When you read a little bit more about that, uh, probably what that was is carob pods, this bitter little black berry that they uh, collected. They extracted kind of a molasses-type substance from it. The pulp that was left was thrown to the pigs for slop. So here he was eating this pulp, this bitter stuff. Well, trying to fight a pig for his food is a losing proposition for sure. But, uh, and it didn't work out for him because notice the promise of a job. Apparently, he had tried to get a job from this citizen. But in the last part of verse 16, it says, no man gave unto him. No man gave unto him. And here we have the human race always looking for something. And here we have sinful mankind saying, I want what I want and I don't want the Father. And they join themselves to this citizen and they join themselves to this citizen and yet find nothing. And notice what it says here, no man gave unto him. Plan A, I'm going to drink. Plan A, I'm going to smoke it up. Plan A, I'm going to live with the harlots. Plan A, it's party time. Plan A, I'm leaving my family. I'm going to go out and enjoy life. Plan A, I'm going to have a big time. Plan A didn't work. Plan B, I'll fix my life. I'll go get a job. I'll get a career. I'll change things. I'll join myself to this world. I'll move to a new neighborhood. I'll marry a new person. I'll get a, I'll get a new job. But it didn't work because man has nothing to give me. This man is dissatisfied. If that wasn't bad enough, he went from bad to worse. And in number six, a sinful life is an unbalancing life. And when he came to himself, <laughs> his self-destructive behavior had become so bad that it was now mental illness. He came to himself. He was, in a, he was in a mental fog. He was in a funk, a depression. Uh, he was so discouraged. He had become just crazy. I mean, he literally had become crazy. Mental illness. It says he came to himself. 
I'll tell you one thing. After 40 years of ministry, I've talked to tens of thousands of people, and I have talked to some of the most brilliant, some of the richest people. I mean, millions, multi, hundreds of millions uh, air type people. I've talked to the, some of the smartest people, gone to college all their life, brilliant people. And yet, at the same time, you talk to them about their spiritual life, and they're kooky. I mean, they're just like nuts. They can be brilliant in one area, and yet you talk to them about their spiritual life, and they're wooing out there. And that's what it says here. It says they're just, they came to themselves. This man had lived in sin so long that it had affected his mind. He, he was just unbalanced. And boy, I tell you one thing, if you ever find a son or a daughter or a loved one or a friend that is just into sin, they are just, it, is, it really is a mental illness. It is self-destructive. You can tell them, don't do this, don't drink this, don't eat this, don't smoke this, don't go here, don't make this part of your life. And they'll say, yeah, that's right, and go right out and do it anyway. That's because it's sin. It's just sin makes you crazy. You just can't think straight. Think about your own life. Think about where you were at one time. Think about where you were before you got saved and all the crazy things that you thought. And now that you are sitting here in church singing songs about the Lord and how much more clear your mind is. Thank God for how the gospel affects not only our soul, but it affects our mind. At this story, at this part of the story now, the father re-enters the story. And so now we have the return, the ruin, and now we see the return. Verse 17, and when he came to himself, he said, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and despair, and I perish with hunger. Now his father comes to his mind. He'd been trying to keep the father away. I don't want to think about the father. I don't want to think about going back home. I will do anything in my mind except for think about my father. And yet, uh, finally, when he took consideration, it began to lead to salvation. And here we find uh, this man. And, you know, thank God for adversity because Dr. Jesus, it's his, his sharpest scalpel in his medical bag to help us get over our sin sickness. And that's what it says in Ezekiel 18 and verse 28, the prophet cried out, because he considereth and turneth away that he hath committed, he shall surely live and shall not die. Now I want you to notice about the goodness of God here in this verse. It says, how many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough to spare? Hired servants, the hired servants. These were day laborers. His dad apparently was a man of some uh, worth. He was a man who had some income. And he would go out and hire these day laborers who perhaps for maybe uh, they uh, had a harvest to take in or something like that. And so they would hire these day laborers. They often were not super educated. Maybe they were had down on their luck. And so they needed money for a day. And uh, yet he said his father was good to them. Even though they may have not been the cream of the crop, even though they may have been just day laborers, the fact is his dad took care of even the day laborers. I think this is a, a good story. I think this is a good reminder about how that our Heavenly Father takes care of even the day laborers. You know, it'd be great to be a son that's always obedient. It'd be great to be one that's always in the Father's house. But you know what? God even takes care of those who 
maybe have not had such a good life, and yet God still abundantly, notice the verse, it says, He had given them enough for bread and more. It was not just a, you know, parceling out a little bit of money here and there. No, He took care of these guys. And so how did this son get back to the Father? Four steps in returning to God. First of all, he confessed his fault. I have sinned. Verse 18, I will arise and go to my Father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And that's, by the way, always the best place to start. Unvarnished honesty with God. Our sin and all of its shame, you can't trick God with your semantics. Folks, never go to God and try to trick Him in your prayers. <laughs> Just tell Him like it is, because He knows it anyway. You know, one of the things that the Bible tells us, if we would confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive them. That word confesses the Greek word homologeo, which means same word. Say the same thing that God says about our sin. We like to say things about our sin like, well, I was... Uh, unkind. No, I was, I was hateful or I was, wanted to murder somebody. That's what God says, and we need to just be clear about it. I remember it's been years ago now, I, we had a traffic citation of some sort, and I felt like it was, uh, there were some extenuating circumstances, and they say that you can actually go to court and you know, try to fight those things, and so uh, we didn't have a lot of money. I felt like, well, you know, it was probably worth trying to save 50 or $75 or whatever it was, so I went down to the courts down there on Weber Avenue and sat in there, waited for my turn. The judge got up and explained how it was going to go. And uh, he said, now you, can, you have three options here. You can plead uh, innocent, you can plead guilty, or you can plead no contest, if I remember. And so he explained it. And uh, innocent, well, I thought, well, I'm, I'm innocent. Well, I guess I'm not really innocent because I, I actually did that. Guilty? Well, I'm guilty, but there was extenuating circumstances. So I'm not really guilty, but I'm, I'm, I guess I'm guilty, but not really guilty. And then he said, no contest. I still don't have any idea what that means. It's just like, I guess it means if you don't know what you're doing, you just say no contest. And uh, I didn't know then. I still don't know what it means. But uh, so I was sitting there thinking about this, and one by one, the judge basically ripped everybody to pieces. And uh, one by one, they all went down, you know, walked out of there. By that time, I was like, you know, I have no, I, why am I in here? I don't want to talk to that judge. I, why did I do this? It's the stupidest thing I ever did. And so to save myself $50, I was going to end. So I stood up and the judge said, yes, sir, uh, Timothy Pollock, uh, what do you want to plead? I'm like, <laughs> well, judge, he said, well, how do you want to plead? You have to say it up front first. You can't just explain your situation. I want to just explain it to him, then let him figure it out, you know, but that's not the way it works. You know what, really, the, my point is this. You know, when you come to God, just be honest with God. No contest, guilty, innocent. No, just say, look, I'm guilty, God. I am totally guilty. Go with it. Secondly, he realized the seriousness of his sin. Verse 18, I have sinned against heaven. He might have made excuses for himself. <laughs> well, yeah, I sinned, but my dad was a rough guy. He made me get up every day and work out there, out there in the field. I mean, I'm not a field kind of guy. I'm an artsy kind of guy. I should have been able to go to Jerusalem and work out there in the film festivals. You know, I did, I'm, not a, I'm not one of them kind of guys. I, he could have said, uh, look, I, I have a chemical imbalance, or I was born this way, or I was born this way. The folks deal is 
There's no excuses. He just said, I have sinned against heaven. And all sin, really, is against God's authority. We say, well, I sinned against my parents, or I sinned against my husband, or my wife, or my children, or my boss, or society. No, really, all sin is against heaven. And notice how he knew how bad it was. Not only did I sin against heaven, which is another word for God, heaven, God, but he said, before thee, (laughs) before thee. In other words, flagrantly, arrogantly, openly, before your face, I basically told you, I don't care about you. This guy repented right. He first of all confessed his sin. Then he very clearly said, I was against God. And then thirdly, he acknowledged what he forfeited. I am no more worthy. Verse 19, I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Totally, 100%, I am so sorry what I did. I do not deserve your favor. I have forfeited favor of God an utter abandonment of any expectations. And I will say this, as long as there is one, even one percent expectation on my part, I'm still not repenting. But when I absolutely vomit my sin up before God and before others, and I just lay it out there like it really is, I just say, you know what? I am entitled to nothing but a eternity in hell. It always surprises me when people don't like to say things like, I deserve hell. Because some people, that catches in their throat. I mean, honestly, they can't say those words. Because in the back of their mind, they're like, I don't really deserve hell. I mean, a little hell, but not all of hell. You know, I, folks, you need to get to the point, I need to get to the point where we simply say, If I got what I deserved, I would burn forever in hell. 100% of us, all of us, if I got what I deserved, it would be forever in the fires of hell. Until we get to that point in our mind, we're still not repenting. This guy repented. Why was this guy so successful? Because he repented. He said, I am not worthy of you doing anything for me. I deserve hell. I don't deserve one second in heaven. Number four, he then acted on his decision. Verse 20 in part A, he arose and came to his father. Good intentions mean nothing if we don't follow through. He's broken. He's ready. He believes that the father can do something for him. And so without delay, he struck while the iron was hot there's nothing to think about. You know, I've often wondered, and I do the same thing, but, you know, sometimes I don't even even tell people. I'll tell them, here's what's right and here's what's wrong. And then I'll say something like, pray about it, would you, brother? You know what? Honestly, that's a stupid thing to say. If it's right, you don't need to pray about it. (laughs) Just do it. Well, pray, I'll pray about that. Don't pray about it if it's right. Just do it. It says here, he arose and he came to his father. He came 
to his father. He saw his sin. He turned 180 and turned to the Father, and that's what repentance is. It is turning from my sin. It is turning to the Father. He said he turned to the Father, and he didn't stop halfway. And really, in this story, perhaps sometime either, probably next week, I at least want to mention, even though it's not really the main thrust of this story, but I do want to mention some thoughts about how to deal with those who are in sin, rebellious, a son or a daughter. I find so many Christian families making big mistakes, and especially here. They, they run to the child when the child was supposed to run to the parent. They want to pull them out of the pig pen when they're supposed to get out of the pig pen and come and repent. We want to give them a sandwich when they ought to eat the pig's slop. We want to get rid of their issues when they need those issues. And here, this young man, he needed all this problems in his life to bring him to a point where he knew that he needed the father. But trust me, this father was not some mean old dad, not some mean bitter mom. This was a loving father who was standing, waiting, waiting. And as we'll see it next week, he was longing and praying, but he was holding back and not trying to get ahead of God. He was trying to let God do a thorough work. And here this man was coming back to God, and it says he arose and he came to the Father. He came to the Father. Don't stop halfway. Don't stop halfway and say, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to this uh, self-help group, or I'm going to go to the college, or I'm going to go to this friend. No, go all the way to the Father. That's where we find our strength. We go to the book. We go to the God's Word. We go to church. We get to the place where God is. Go all the way to the Father. Don't stop halfway. And anytime we're repenting and we're coming back, make sure we go all the way. And when we do, we get all that the Father wants to give us. This Father was just waiting to shower this Son with the mighty blessings. We'll see that next week. Let me tell you a story, a powerful story, an amazing story I heard years ago. I want to relate it to you this morning before we leave. There was a wealthy man who had one son, only one, who he loved so dearly. This man loved art, and he taught his son as well to love fine art. He amassed valuable private collection of priceless works of art. When he was old enough, this son joined the Marines and was sent to Vietnam and tragically was killed in action. The father's heart was broken. A few months after he had buried his only son, a young man knocked on his door with a large wrapped package in his hands. The father opened the door and the young man quickly said, Sir, I knew your son. We were in the same platoon. In fact, he's my best buddy. I'm an amateur artist, and we actually shared a love for art, and I actually painted a portrait of your son from a photograph I had, and I would like you to have it. The man, of course, was touched and tried to pay the young man, but he refused any payment, and he said, look, I just painted him because he was my friend. And all that, that picture wasn't very good, just an amateur idea. The father proudly displayed it right in a prominent place amidst all his other beautiful fine art. 
Several years later, that wealthy man died, and the wealth, those works of art were going to be auctioned off. Millions of dollars. Millions of dollars of priceless artwork. This man had a Van Gogh, he had a Monet, he had other priceless works. And there in the midst of all those priceless artworks was this portrait of his son drawn by an amateur artist. He uh, told others about this auction. The time came. The lawyer came to represent the man after he passed away. The lawyer stood up and talked to the crowd before uh, they began to bid. And among, not only were these great uh, people who wanted to buy the art, but there was this same young man. He came, knew he could never buy anything, but just wanted to be there and wanted to see what would happen to that particular picture. The lawyer announced to the crowd that before any valuable pieces of art were auctioned off, the deceased had left specific instructions that the portrait of the son must be auctioned off first. The impatient art dealers complained, said, oh, really? Come on, get that thing out of the way so we can bid on the real art. The auctioneer stood up and said, if if I can get $100, we can continue. Nobody would even give $100 for the painting. Finally, we got down to 20, and this young man who had painted the actual painting said, I got 20. I can do that. And he wanted that picture back. And so, sold for $20. The artist bought back his own painting. And right at that moment, the rich man's attorney stepped to the front of the crowd and announced, Ladies and gentlemen, I'm here to announce to you that there will now be no more bidding. There's a shock that went through the crowd. He said, my client left secret and specific instructions that whosoever bought the painting of his son would receive all the other works of art at no additional charge. And then the lawyer quoted the exact words in the last will and testament. And listen, friends, here's what he said. Whoever chooses my son gets it all. Whoever chooses my son gets it all. And this concludes the auction. And folks, God is saying the same thing to us this morning, and He's saying to this prodigal, if you get the son, you get it all. And that's what Jesus was trying to tell these religious leaders. Take the son, and you'll get it all. Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed here this morning.